This time on the Jewel Show podcast. It was a hot summer morning, and Scott Rigsby woke up to face it like he did every other day. He went to work at his job as a landscaper, a position he took after his recent high school graduation to earn him a little extra money to take with him when he went off to college in the fall. He had no idea that day, which started out so incredibly ordinary, would be the last ordinary day of his life. Here's Jules. It took, Scott, nine seconds, roughly, for your life to change forever. Yep. You were growing up in southwest Georgia. Yes. My neck of the woods. And um, the summer after you're graduating from high school and you're riding the back of a truck, can you can you kind of tell us what was going on that day in your life? So I had just graduated from high school. There were, we were about uh, two months into the summer. It was a summer job with two of my best friends from high school. Um, we had... Uh, we're going to different colleges, and so that was our chance to to work a landscaping job from the small town uh, in South Georgia where I'm from. And uh, we were working for their city, and basically our little small city would contract with other smaller cities uh, to cut their governmental property. And so we had a crew that three people rode in the, in the front of the truck and three people rode in the back of the truck sitting on the back of a toolbox. Because that's what we did in the 80s. Yeah. Yeah. And with our feet dangling in the bed of the truck. Yep. We had uh, two push lawn mowers uh, in the bed of the truck, or two or three, and then we would have a flatbed with two industrial riding lawn mowers on the back, and that's the way we rolled. So we would go sometimes uh, no more than probably... 15 or 15 miles out of town and and do the landscaping and cutting the grass and all that and then come back. So it's July 23rd, 1986. I drove us over there. You were young. Yeah, I was young. and Future uh, ahead of you. Sure. And so uh, drove us over there. Uh, We did our our, uh, work and then we're heading in to go back to lunch. And I drove until this little convenience store and... And uh, my boss is like, let's take uh, turns, you know, driving. So I literally had my hand on the steering wheel, and then I hopped up on the back of the truck. So um, like I had done a gazillion times, even that summer and the summer before. And so uh, I was sitting on the back, and this 18-wheeler had been following us for about 10 miles. And so you got impatient because we weren't, we were getting paid for the hour, by the hour. We weren't in a rush to go back to the home base to do more work. Um, and we were uh, having a great time with each other, uh, talking about girls and going off to college. And then as he went, became impatient, he went to pass us on this long straightaway. And he, but he didn't realize that there was a small, narrow bridge up ahead of us that we were approaching. And so as he went barreling down the highway at about 45 miles an hour, uh, he didn't think that the 18-wheeler driver who had tried to pass us did not think that he was going to have enough room on both vehicle, for both vehicles on the bridge that so he moved over. Well, if you look at the lateral view of an 18-wheeler, you have the cab of the truck and it backs up, and then they roll those jacks to let the weight of the cargo sit onto the the bed of the truck well those jacks were hanging up and it was even when he went to move over to the yellow line and move and miss 
the side of the bridge, the 18-wheeler driver's jack, right front jack, hit our left front flatbed trailer tire. It was just a perfect storm. It just hit it and perfectly, and it blew it out, blew our left front trailer tire out. And so the flat, our flatbed hit, bumped into, fishtailed into the side of the bridge. That jarring effect caused me to get knocked off the back of our pickup truck uh, from the toolbox and I grabbed a hold of the side of the truck for a brief second I couldn't hold on and as as I was flying by our flatbed my legs were caught in between the there was a brace in between the two flatbed trailer our flatbed trailer tires and so I'd hit the pavement it bounced up and uh, and I hovered off of the pavement for uh, over a football field. And the reason I know that is because there was a truck driver behind the one who actually hit us. And so he saw everything and he said that I hit the pavement, bounced up, and there was a rope wrapped around the two riding lawnmowers, industrial sized lawnmowers, but I couldn't reach the rope. But he said that it looked like somebody was standing on the back of the trailer holding my hands off of the ground. Because otherwise, if you took a pencil and you went outside, whether it's in your driveway or on, the, on, the, uh, in, on a road, and you just decided to bear down the pencil, you wouldn't make it 25 yards, much less 100 yards, and there's going to be no pencil. And there really shouldn't be any me at all because I should have been not here but got a different plans and so uh, as we as this as I was uh, you know going across the highway or hovering across the highway my friend in the middle as this had happened friend that was sitting in the middle he grabbed my other friend or the would or would have uh, crushed between the side of the truck and the bit bridge and then went to grab for me and I wasn't there so he frantically started beating on the back of the glass to tell the driver to actually stop because I was sitting behind the driver um, and he noticed that I wasn't there so that's when he freaked out and started hitting on the back of the glass um, the driver stopped but the damage was just done like I said I had already covered a football field my friend jumped off the back of the truck uh, uh, knelt beside me and and uh, you know I woke up and I played high school football and it felt like my bell was was rung that I you know got hit really hard and uh, I didn't have you know my senses together so I was just trying to get up to figure out what was happening and um, and he and I looked up at him and he was ghost white pale and and uh, he said, we've been in an accident and uh, helps on its way. And so I kind of faded in and out of consciousness. But the first miracle was me actually living through that experience. And then the second miracle happened when we landed between two houses. That was It was rural South Georgia before uh, social media, before cell phones. And, uh, and so, we, so we were between two houses so somebody could use actually a landline to call the hospital which was only 10 miles away when it could have been 30 or 40 miles away those houses could have been positioned two or three miles away 
Um, the truck driver behind the one who hit us that saw everything, he was a first responder, so he was helping out. Um, the, uh, um, the hospital, like I said, it was only, you know, 10 or 12 miles away, so they had sent out an ambulance on the way. But when the trailer tire, our flatbed stopped, it landed on my right leg, which was good and bad. It landed right above my ankle, right ankle. And so it was good in that it acted as a tourniquet, so I didn't bleed to death. But it was bad because it was 6,000 pounds on me. So where in the world are you going to be able to find a uh, tow truck or a, a helicopter or some kind of a crane or something like that to be able to lift this weight off of me? when it's the middle of summer southwest georgia 1986 we're 10 miles from the nearest town which is not even that big and it's lunchtime so but out of nowhere a tow truck happened to show up and no way and for those old enough of us uh to remember it was uh like a highway to heaven michael landon story because this tow truck driver showed up and um that was uh 34 years ago nobody called the tow truck driver nobody knows where the truck driver truck driver came from and this was uh you know my story's been or this story has been all over the news uh certainly at that time so they rushed you to the hospital um when did you know at what point that you knew that this was not just your bell getting rung um that this was going to be a lasting impact on the rest of your life so it was probably um i faded in and out of consciousness and um the my first kind of recollection is um me seeing my cousin and i was like man i think i really messed up this time because you know it wasn't your typical you know high school kind of injury or you know you could just uh, tell on their faces yeah, when you were yeah, waking up. Yeah, I could up. just tell the concern on their faces. And, you know, they were giving me a lot of medication. So, you know, a lot of that, you know, I'm just fading in out of consciousness. And then finally I wake up. It was about 1 o'clock in the morning uh, that the day of the accident and uh, or that night of the accident. And I, um, I hear the doctors talking about, uh, talking to my parents about they're going to have to take off my leg. And so... I just kind of sat up and I said, you mean to tell me that you're going to take my leg off? Because at that time, I had already put on uh, probably 35 pounds of muscle from just, you know, being a late bloomer and, and yeah, going I off to college. I saw pictures of you, Scott. Yeah. yeah. And you it, were working outside in the yeah, South Georgia was, heat. Was, so you yeah, was just working outside. Were, it was manual labor. Yeah. So I was in great shape. You and were. I would go and work out after that. And so... I was in, and they, you know, they attributed that me, part of that to me surviving is that I was in such good shape. But, um, but I, I, you know, here I go from, here I'm very proud of this body that I've built, but uh, now they're telling me I'm not going to have any legs anymore. And so he said, you know, we, we might have to, to take off, you know, both your legs. So at that time, my parents were kind of freaking out. I was kind of freaking out. I just went and passed Shocked. out at that time. And so three days later, I woke up with uh, my right leg missing below the knee. And my left leg, my, my calcaneus, my heel bone, was completely drug off. 
So I would, to try to save it, I would have to have bone grafts, skin grafts, and muscle grafts. So at this smaller rural hospital, they said, we're going to ship you to Atlanta, and there's some specialists at, that, at Emory at that time that we can uh, try to, um, you know, reconstruct your leg and try to save your leg. Because, I mean, I, I didn't know in the middle of the 80s, I didn't know anybody uh, that there were only, you know, a couple of channels at that time on television and in rural parts of uh, South Georgia. And then, oh, I remember that. Very And then while. even if you were in the city, you know, cable television really hadn't taken off. So there was no social media. So you did not see people with artificial legs. Or I certainly didn't know if they were. Then they maybe were in Vietnam veterans and they were older and they didn't really get around very good at that time and and so there there weren't young people I was a young person I was in the you know kind of height of my life the best the best years of my life are supposed to be ahead of me but yet um, you know now I have this big challenge ahead of me. And so you how many surgeries did you do? So the first so the first year was probably about 17 surgeries uh, before I could reconstruct this ankle, it was one le- one surgery to take off this leg, and then I had broken my femur, your thigh bone. I had broken my femur, um, and so I'd have uh, a rod put in, a rod taken out, antibiotic beads put in, antibiotic beads taken out, and those type of surgeries just add up. And, and so I'd you lost your right leg, and then you had these surgery on the left leg. Yeah. The left leg. So how many years? Like, what's the time? Span well, of that the many time start. frame was from 86 to 87. I went off to, to school in the fall of 87. Wow. Yeah. So you finally made the decision, enough with the surgeries, I will take off my le- left leg. How did that you come? That was 12 years later. 12 years. How did you come to that conclusion? How did, well, what brought I, you to that? At that point, I'd already had 25 surgeries. And um, I remember actually being over here in Athens and... Uh, going to one of the doctors here because if you look if you look at the bottom of your foot if you have one uh, and kind of on the bony prominence on the right below your ankle um, and below that I mean that part was all it was part they took my lat muscle out they took some bone chips from my back they took some skin from my thigh and they created me like an, a functional, at that time, functional ankle that was fused. But, um, I mean, if you uh, just kind of drew a part, you know, kind of half of your foot, started in the middle and kind of drew a line down there, I had a seam that was the donor skin and then actually my real foot. And so that don't, that seam would open up, not gaping, but would open up from time to time and it would ooze out fluid, just, you know, blood at times. And so I realized that, okay, if I if I get an infection, that infection could travel up my leg and it could get into my bone and I could lose more of my leg or I could make, you know, a radical decision and actually take off my leg, you know, symmetrical and it's close to my to mirror it's close to my right leg so that I could walk better 
And, and I'm trying uh, to do the math. I'm not really great at it. You were probably what in your 30s at this point when you made this. Well, I was I was 30. You were 30. Yeah, Look at I was me and my 30 math, Scott. I mean, 12 years later, yeah. I mean, so that was a big decision at such yeah. a young age. But I well, can yeah. see what you're saying because at that point you weren't your mobility wasn't. Sure. I mean, I remember being in the bathtub the night before the surgery, uh, bathing and looking at, you know, a leg that's not going to be there. The next time I take a bath, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna have any feet. At least I have one foot, but I'm not going to have any feet. But it was, it was certainly a, a calculated risk. First of all, that you were here is a, it's a miracle. It, it's the providence of God that there was the man there at the right time. You had the first responder there. You had the, the truck that got the, the, the car, I mean, everything off of you. But I am um, doing some research. I came across um, that you said that this whole event, losing both your legs at, at a very young age, at the prime of your life, you see it as somewhat of a, of a blessing from God. Well, I mean, you, you can look at it as a curse or you can look at it as a blessing. And, and I choose to look at it as a blessing because, you know, uh, it, it didn't say it didn't say a sum. It doesn't say a few it doesn't say a couple, but when I read the Bible, it says all things work together for the good that love God and are called according to his purpose. It says all. So it didn't say some or a few or a couple or a handful. You know, it says all things. So all these things that, you know, if we're called to according to God's purpose, then all these things that happen to us, whether good, bad, or indifferent, you know, then they can be a blessing. They can work for God. It talk, also talks about in the Bible that our light affliction is but for a moment. So um, I look at this like if I'm walking somewhere um, in a uh, in an airport, I get more looks than a supermodel would because I walk so well and God's blessed me with a very uh, smooth gait. I don't limp. And if people, if I had pants on, then people wouldn't wouldn't know that I had two artificial legs. The technology have been blessed because the technology is there. I've been blessed because I have great processists. I had a great physical therapist. I had a great surgeon. I had a great uh, trainers. I've I've had great people. God has brought you know great people in my lives because if I read the Bible, God took these really messed up. Uh, folks in the Bible that had a lot of problems and a lot of issues and a lot of flaws and uh, he surrounded them with great people to accomplish his purpose and so um, if I take in everything that I just said you know it if I look at my life as just uh, just like a breath in light of eternity here that um you know the dash in between those dates is so small if i just look at that in in light of eternity if i view my life in eternity in in light of eternity then you know i can use what god allowed me to go through god did not do this to me a man simply made a mistake and it and it caused a lot of pain and heartache to me um but god used that for good because the best four spiritual laws that I could have ever been given were my two prosthetic legs because these legs have actually opened up 
doors for conversations to have with people that I would have never had had I not had them. And your platforms. I mean, yeah. you've been on national TV and, sure, and you ne- share. I mean, you, you can't cover up that God had a sovereign plan for you and your story. You know what I mean? And so, uh, you know, you can Google Scott Rigsby and you can see all the video clips and how you are glorifying God through it all. Uh, But but the the journey, because I think not maybe not all of us are are going to lose our legs. Right. I mean, but we're all going to have something in our lives to happen to us. um, And we have to go through the process of submitting to God's will. So tell me about that process, because I know you didn't wake up the next day and say, He's going to work this all out. No, I didn't. But there's two things. Like right now, we live in a nation. All you have to do is turn on the TV or go on the Internet. You know, we just had this election. And you can tell that our country is split along party lines. And and, uh, all you have to do is bring up the the subject of politics if you really want to just shake a hornet's nest (laughs) you know i'd rather have a hornet's nest and and then then you know go into a political discussion with someone because people are very polarized this country is split along party lines and um uh it is it is hurtful and and uh you know we need a nation that needs to heal itself Mm -hmm. but there's two things that every person in this nation has in common. There's two things that we have commonalities about, and that is pain and loss. And the older that we are, the more we have experienced of those two things. But we were birthed into pain, you know, and uh, some people are lost at birth, but we are we are birthed into pain, and then we, as we grow, we experience, you know, grow older, we experience loss in our lives, whether it would be a young person or middle age or either as an older person, we will experience pain. Those are a given. It's also a given that when the day of trouble comes, not if the day of trouble comes, we're going to face hardships in our life. So if we know that, uh, it's easy for me to talk to people because I've experienced pain and loss, a great visible experience, pain and loss. And people can see that. So people have been able to open up to me about their pain and loss because they know, hey, this guy might be able to relate to it. Not everything that I've gone through. I mean, I, I don't have children, so I don't know what it's like to lose a child. But I know what it's like to lose something near and dear to me. So um, that, you know, really that gift was birthed the day of the accident of being able to relate to the pain and loss in our life. Do you have any advice for somebody listening um, not to sit in bitterness? Because I think the temptation would be right that this isn't what I would had planned for my life and God did this and how do you get out of that I just think that I mean you can you can always look at somebody that uh you can always look at your life and you could look at you know somebody else that you have it better than them and you can just say wow you know I've got it better than them and that can puff you up with pride or you can look at somebody else you know and they've got you know they've got it better than you and you can puff yourself up with envy 
So there's this balancing act between envy and pity for other people. And and instead of just embracing, you know, what you've been entrusted with. And I think that's why, like in the Bible, if you were to go to the parable of the talents and and were to focus in on what the message that God was trying to relay to us through that is that, you know, take what I've, you know, take what you have been given and and multiply it and and grow it and cultivate it and uh, bless other people with it. We've got more with Jules and Scott Rigsby coming up on the Jules Show podcast. Stay with us. On the latest episode of the Finding Joy podcast, we visit with former All-Pro Atlanta Falcon Greg Brezina. We visited with Greg at the offices of his counseling center, Christian Families Today, for a very candid conversation. Our Sunday school teacher told us that God hears the prayers of good little boys, but he doesn't hear the prayers of bad little boys. He died the next day. I really hated God. It's the Finding Joy podcast. Find it under the on-air tab at thejoyfm.com or anywhere that you subscribe to find podcasts. When you you did something like the unthinkable, right? And well, uh, that's what, certainly why I titled the book Unthinkable is because um, I never aspired to be a motivational speaker. I never aspired to be a, a triathlete. Yeah, I never aspired to write a book. I mean, I, I didn't aspire to be these things but god you know it says that man makes his plans but you know god has uh, other his own plans for us uh the way i look at it is what you're listening today is not a scott rigsby story it's not my story it's really god's story and my role in his story because i believe since the beginning of time that god whoa, has whoa, been... whoa, whoa. you got to go back because that was really good Say that again for everybody, because that was uh, that was that was a take a note, write this down. Well, sure. So the first thing, you know, that it's what, God's story. Yeah, he, I always, you know, people always say, "How oh, you have a great story?" And I was like, "Well, I don't. My story is full, full of pain and sorrow, disappointment, and it's about a young man drowning in his despair. There's absolutely nothing inspiring. There's nothing of value in that story, as you know." If we looked at our lives, you know, in light of eternity up against God's standard, you know, we look at our lives and our good works or whatever, then it it doesn't me- it never will measure up. So I don't look at my life like that. I look at my life like I'm a voice piece for God's story. I play a role in God's story. He is the author of my story. That's so good, Scott. So yeah. I when when I share with somebody, I go, this is God's story, my role in it, and ultimately it's about the service of others. And that's my, you know, my goal is somebody said, hey, well, what's your goal in life? My goal is to live a life of, of resiliency, sustainability, and in the, in the service of others. Now, I do a good job on the first one. I do a good job on the second one. Where we can only hold on to God like the lady in the Bible who had been bleeding for so long and she held on to Jesus' garment, you know, that sustainability is what we're all trying to achieve. That is where we have to get up when we don't want to get up in the morning 
And that's where we where we have to serve. We have to give when we don't have anything to give. We have to love when we don't have anything to love. That's the sustainability part. That's the Christian life. That's the Christian experience. The resiliency, you either will have it innately or you won't. You know, I mean, tough people are live longer because they want to. And and then the service of others, you'll develop a heart of service or you'll develop a heart of bitterness like we talked about earlier, talking about getting over the bitterness. You get over the bitterness when you serve, when you give. You get over the bitterness when you when you are cheated, you continue to give. You know, when you've been taken advantage of, you continue to give. You just don't give up on the character of the person that God has made you and that God wants you to be. Scott, this is all so good. So good. I, I love it. And you you did the um, Hawaiian Ironman Triathlon. You didn't even own a bike at the time when the thought came into your mind. Yeah. <laughs> So I was at the lowest point of my life. I didn't want to live anymore. And so... And what age were you at this point, just so I can... I was 38. Okay. I was working a dead-end job. I was estranged from my family. I had had multiple failures, nothing. uh, You know, like if my life had ended at that point, I really wouldn't have had anything to show for it at all at 38. And so, like many of our service members, our wounded, ill, and injured service members that, you know, decide to commit suicide, 20 a day, um, you know, they, I, I felt the same way they did. I had been through a different type of war and come through with all these individual, invisible wounds. The visible wounds were my prosthetics, and I were doing, was doing pretty good on those. But it was the invisible war that was going on. I had had a traumatic brain injury at the time of 18, and they didn't know anything about it. And so I went through all kinds of ups, emotional ups and downs with that uh, before I was able to get some cognitive therapy and get some help with that. But I just didn't feel, I, I felt like many people that probably are listening today is like, you know, if I'm not here, then nobody's really going to miss me. Or if I'm, you know, uh, it would just be better off. I'm a burden to people. It would just be better off if I was just dead. You know, so there's a lot of people out there, not just our wounded, ill, and injured service members, but there's a lot of people out there that are, they don't have any hope. And hope deferred makes the heart sick. And if it gets sick enough, it'll die. Or you'll make the choice to to end it and so at that time I was um I had already decided that I was going to end my life and so I I drove this was the Christmas of uh 2005 and I said I'm going to just drive down to my parents house in southwest Georgia they're good great Christian people and they did a good job of trying to raise me in a good Christian home and they prayed for me every day and and loved me as much as they could so it wasn't you know, their fault. Uh, it wasn't God's fault because he had given me many opportunities along the way uh, to uh, to have a better life and to make something out of this uh, brokenness that I was experiencing. But, so it wasn't his fault. 
uh, so I just felt like, well, it's my fault because I haven't really done anything with it. And I've been a poor example of the parable of talents. And so I'm just going to check out. Were you and going to say goodbye to them? I'm, yeah, I was just going to go say goodbye to them. It was it was about it was uh, it was Christmas um, uh, if you, one or two days before Christmas. It was Christmas Eve. And I was laying on my parents' living room floor. I'd spent a couple of days with them, and um, I knew that when I came back to Atlanta, you know, made the three or four hour drive north that I was just going to figure out a way to end my life and, and end it with the least amount of pain because I was already in excruciating pain, uh, emotional, physical, not physical, but emotional and spiritual and and um, psychological. And so I just said I was going to end it. Well, I was laying on my parents' living room floor and everybody had gone to bed Christmas Eve and I had tears just streaming down my face and... My mom, so many times she had prayed for me and pushed back those walls of despair. But that night, as as I was laying in my vat of brokenness, uh, I just asked her to come in and pray for me. And she knelt down beside me, again, laying on the floor, staring at the ceiling, tears streaming down my face, um, both sides. And, and I just said, you know, I, I really need you to pray for me. And so she prayed for me. But if so many times it had just pushed back, like it gave me a little relief. It, it, there was a light that kind of broke through the darkness, but that there was no glimmer. It was just completely black. It was completely dark. And it felt like her prayer hit the ceiling and bounced back beside me. And so kind of in my desperation, I cried out to God and said, Hey, you know, God, I, I, the only thing that I kind of uniquely know what to do is these running legs that I got that I don't use. I put those on and I have incredible balance with them. And I know that I probably could run with them, but I don't know what to do with that. And that's not going to put a roof over my head or food on my table or or get me out of this situation. But I promise you, if you open up a door for me, then I will run through it. And so and that, that night you had that. Yeah, that night. So that's the prayer that I said next to my mom, holding her hand. And she went to bed. I went to bed. We had Christmas. Nothing happened, you know, other than that night, nothing happened. There wasn't a choir or an angel showed up or nothing miraculous happened. But a few days later, when I did drive back to Atlanta... I didn't have the same amount of heaviness on me. You know, I was kind of dragging my feet on killing myself. And so I walked in this bookstore in Atlanta, and I read about this world-famous race called the Hawaiian Ironman Triathlon or the Ironman World Championships. And it, was, it started 1978. Uh, with a group of military men that were sitting around in a little barn grill and they were drinking a bunch of Kool-Aid and the more Kool-Aid they drank, the longer this race Better got. Better idea. <laughs> yeah, the longer this race got. Right. And so it started with, they were tough guys and from different branches of the service and they wanted to see who was the toughest of the swimmers, bikers, and runners. Each one of them had, had their kind of recreational uh, sport and so they said, well, hey, there's a, 
uh, open water swim here. It's 2.4 miles. Uh, and then there's a bike race around the island that covers 112 miles. And then there's the Honolulu Marathon. So let's just do all three of them together in one day. So let's take the 2.4 mile swim and we'll follow it by a 112 mile bike ride and we'll follow it by the 26.2 mile run and we'll have it done in 17 hours. And whoever of the 15 guys that finish this will give them a dinky little trophy that says you're an Ironman and a t-shirt. And so they did that. And 15 men towed the line, 12 finished and uh it just started that's where the birth of iron man is and then fast forward 42 years later iron man is actually a international brand it's owned by the corporation it's owned by a billion over a billion dollar corporation a multi-billion dollar corporation and now that has races all in every country you know in several countries maybe 40 or 50 countries have Ironmans, they have some half Ironman, and Ironman is simply a distance. So when you hear Ironman, it's not a weightlifting competition, you know, it is a, an endurance race. And it the Ironman is simply those distances, 2.4 mile swim, 112 mile bike ride, 26.2 mile run, and then a triathlon is where you just swim, bike, and run. And so that's, they're synonymous with each other. But the Ironman is the longest of these one-day triathlons. It is impressive. Yeah. And you did it. Yeah. And so when I read about this race, I thought to myself, I was like, wow, I don't think any double amputee in the world has ever finished a race like this. And the next magazine that I opened it up, opened up, it opened up to this article about this soldier who had lost his leg and the war was really hot. This was 13 years ago. The war was was really hot at that time. And I thought, wow, you know what, if I could finish this race with my two prosthetic legs, then I could not only save my life, but I could give it give me a platform to help wounded, ill, and injured service members that are going through the same struggle I'm going through right now, and maybe it would help them because my accident, my traumatic brain injury, my PTSD, my loss of mobility, loss of limbs, all that didn't happen to me. It happened to my family. It happened to my community. And so... And your friends that were yeah, in the truck and, with you. Yeah, and my friends. And so it would give me a platform. The problem was, is that when, you know, when God gives you a vision you know or or his plans he starts to reveal his plans to you we naturally you know we get excited but when then we think when rubber hits the road we think wow we start considering the cost and our flesh takes over and our flesh starts to tell us this doubts like why it cannot be accomplished because it had never been done a double because amputee one, it had never been done and then two i was 20 years past my prime i didn't know how to swim you know uh, without legs i had never ridden uh, one of those fancy triathlon bikes and i didn't even have a bike set of biking legs for, to make for them and then all i had was running legs but i'd never run the point to the 26.2 miles much less you know the whole distance and I didn't think I just didn't know but like the old adage is you know you eat an elephant one bite at a time and so I just you know and it also says in the Bible it says that you know um you know that 
you know, if you if if we believe in God, that all things are possible. When you were training, how did that change your spiritual life? How did that transform you emotionally and? and well, I think I think that there are a lot of people that you know. I, I became a Christian in college on a college campus. Uh, I was grew, grew up in a church uh, and a family, and the, my family were, were Christians. And and we were, my dad taught Sunday school. My mom taught uh, training union, and I, you know, heard a lot about God, but I did not know. Uh, he was just like, you know, from my experience in church, he was this cosmic dictator, um, that, you know, it was like a cosmic bellhop that, you know, he was temperamental and that, you know, you could make these requests, but then he may or may not give it to you and he may or might not give it to you in it with a good, good attitude. That was just my experience with him and that you kind of had to approach him with this fear because, you know, the, my church experience was scaring the heaven out of me. Um, and and so I did not understand this benevolent father that had a plan for us, that wanted to love us and wanted us to pursue you know, experience. You for all yeah, that time. Sure, that, w- that had given his son, that had given. And I didn't understand that. I heard that, but there's a difference between where the Bible says that you intellectually believe in something because even the demons believe, like it says in James, even the demons believe in Jesus and they shudder his name. So how can a demonic spirit have an intellectual belief in Jesus and yet I can have an intellectual belief belief in Jesus? Yes. You know, it comes down to where it says in John, it talks about as many as believed in him, that intellectual belief, but received him, that transfer of our our sinful, fallen, flawed self and sinful self to exchange that with the perfect life of Jesus, that we get the benefit of that. We get to reap the benefits of that and the rewards of that. But it has to take that transaction, it has to be that handshake, that heart shake yeah. with Jesus. It has to take that transfer. And um, so... I didn't experience that until college, and then uh, when when I came to know him and I was growing in my relationship, I, you know, uh, I don't know where I would have gone, you know, I don't want to get in a theological debate about all that stuff, but I don't know where I would have gone if I would have taken my life. But I, I don't even want to think about that because, you know, I was so broken that in my Christian, let's say I was a Christian, at my Christian walk, I had still not found my purpose. And I had not found a relationship with Jesus. So it was at that time that I developed a relationship with Jesus and I understood what God was trying to do that he so it was had like a, a purpose a physical journey but it was also an emotional spiritual one that god put you on yeah. and when um all right so i remember watching the news when um, you came out of the water and i remember thinking like wow you know what i mean because there's there's a there's a news clip where you're yeah. coming out and um and you're riding your bike and you're and now i remember the whole like news 
on it. And I remember thinking like, wow, that is amazing. Crossing the finish line, what was that like? Because people were cheering. I mean, it was a really cool time. Well, I'd been, you know, my legs were ripped to shreds at that time because really the first time I finished the Ironman, I finished it twice in my life. But the first time I finished it, I was like a crash test dummy. I really didn't know what I was doing and it was more about survival and I, so I survived it and I you know I um you know I had uh finished it and then I they had a medical tent they had a stretcher waiting for me I laid on the stretcher took me there got a couple IVs and I took my legs off my running legs off and my legs were so swollen that I could not um I couldn't put them back on and so here it was um went to bed the next morning everybody got up and they were yelling and hooping and hollering cheering for me uh, in the host hotel lobby and then somebody said wow that was one of the most amazing inspirational things I've ever witnessed and then they said what's next and I wanted to jump out of my wheelchair and I wanted to choke put my hands firmly around their neck and choke the life out of them because but that's very consistent Uh, with our culture is that here I had just made history. I became the first person in the world with two prosthetic legs ever to finish this iconic race. But yet it was, you know, and in fairness to them, they had their heart in the right place, but it is where our culture is. We always want to be entertained. We want to see something, the limits pushed, you know, of human ability and and we want to be inspired and we want to uh you know suck the marrow out of life and we want to feel alive um and we want that spark and so anything that pushes those boundaries gives us that spark and you can't chase sparks you have to have you chase the flame that is the Holy Spirit that leads us to Jesus, that leads us to a relationship to our Father. That's the, the fire. The only fire that you need to keep burning is the Holy Spirit that is embedded and is deposited in us when we transfer our sinful, broken, fallen self to take that life of Jesus and allow Him and His ability to live through us. God, that is so good because if. It's all about who got the glory. Is it going to be Scott Rigsby that gets the glory, or is it going to be God that gets the glory? Well, I have gotten a lot of glory, but I have tried to divert that to the proper power source. That's right. That this is just, I'm a conduit to for the Holy Spirit and the work of Jesus to be able to get accomplished. I'm put on my hard hat my blue collar hard hat every day a spiritual blue collar hard hat every day and i try to go to work you know for god and and try to represent him in the best way that i can and i can only do that by you know surrendering that i'm not chasing these flickers of excitement that the world says that will lead us to enlightenment, but it's not. It only leads us to 
De- death because Absolutely. it says the wages of sin is death. It's I mean, like the uh, dog chasing ha- the tail, right? Yeah, you can find happiness. And I've found happiness in a bottle. I've found happiness in, in moral relationships. I've found happiness in drugs. You can find happiness in those things. But the happiness comes at a great cost. The happiness comes at a price, and that Jesus ultimately had to pay, but we will also, we reap what we sow, we reap later than we sow, we reap more than we sow. I mean, it comes at a price, and the wages of sin is death. It's death in our relationships, it's death in our physical body, eventually it's death in our finances. There's many deaths to be paid, but the only life is, is chasing that flame of the Holy Spirit, and the only life is living as close to that flame and embodying that flame as we can. Well, Scott, I uh, I appreciate your willingness to share. I was really excited to meet you because I, you know, I've seen you on the news doing incredible things. Um, but I absolutely love your heart uh, for our men and women who have served who are injured, who are suffering, who find themselves... How many did you say commit suicide a day? What was that? It's at least 20. 20 a yeah. day. So you I've started... as many as 22, but it's at least 20. And then if you think about that, you know, that's like 8,000 people... Staggering. ...missing every year from that have, you know, put themselves on the line. Yeah. You know, they went... They We've had wars, and they went to wars for us. You know, whether you agree with war or not... They, it was their heart was in the right place. Absolutely. Their heart was in the right place. They sacrificed time away from their family to defend our country and to serve us in the military. And, and there's many ways to serve, not just fighting in a battle, but there's many ways to serve. But, um, and so you started the Rigsby Foundation. Would you kind of tell us what you all do? Yeah, I, I, I am. I had a foundation that uh, that lasted about um, seven, about about ten years, and we helped wounded, ill, and injured service members um, just get connected uh, to. Um, uh, one of the things I saw is that there were uh, a lot of military families. The military is so much different than the civilian life. You know, they they serve, many people retire, and the reason why a lot of veterans struggle is because they, everything is so structured, but then they come out into our chaotic, crazy, you know, civilian life, and it's just tough. It's tough to translate those skill sets um, into the working world. So I just wanted to emotionally you know, spiritually, psychologically, I, I just socially, I just wanted them to find and this was like really when the war was really hot i wanted them to be able to find a safe place with civilians that loved our military and through social media and through some athletic events that you know through the triathlon world i was able to put on and raise literally several hundreds of thousands of dollars for these military families to get connected and many of those uh to my great joy are are still connected to get today and that's the legacy because i i I don't want to just have the service of others but i want it to be a legacy in the service of others that's the you know when i think when they think about scott rigsby i want them to think about his 
his love and his commitment to military families and um also just uh, that was that was my legacy mm, i love it i love it all right so scott you are um motivational speaker author of the book unthinkable uh the link to scott and the book is all in the show notes so you can um click on that and i highly recommend it because especially if you need um, hope and you need to know that god's working everything out he loves us completely and he sees us Um, but before we leave before I, i let you scoot on out of here would you speak to that listener right now who find themselves like you did on Christmas Eve in your parents' floor, um, thinking that you were saying your final goodbyes, um, but God, rich in mercy, showed up. Would you speak to them right now? Well, one of the things that I, if I was talking with them like I'm talking to you, um, I would share with them, there's a movie, uh, and it was called um, uh, Castaway. Had Tom Hanks in it, and you know, and the the kind of the storyline is he's has this plane crash, and he's stuck on this island for very for many years. For they they actually declared him dead, and toward the end of the movie, um, he has this kind of moment where he's lost his love of his life because she's married somebody else. You know, he doesn't know where he fits in the world. He's just lost. He's like an alien now on this crazy new planet. And he said he lists out in this one very profound scene, he lists out all the things that he had lost. And he said in that moment, he goes, you know, here's this guy in this moment. He lists out all these things that he lost and how broken his world is at the time and he said what is the one thing that i can do he said i can what is the one thing i could do and he said i took my next breath so you know there's um there you know there were times where all i can do all i could do on my journey was take my next breath and then I took my next one, and I took my next one. And then that feeling of hopelessness left me. There used to be the, there used to be this counselor, and this person would counsel people on, on weight loss. And they, and they said, well, you know, I just get so hungry, I can't fight off these hunger pains, and I just give in to them. And that this person was counseling this other person and said, hey, uh, what I want you to do is I want you to look at your watch. And when you have this hunger pain that hits you, I want you to time it and hang in there and, and last until it goes away. And what happened is every, it, it, it had a, it had a, there was a finality to that pain. The pain actually went away. It went away after a few minutes. Maybe it was five minutes it had to hang on for five minutes and it went away. They didn't feel the same way that they did initially. The initial, those 30 seconds were grueling because they were in so much pain. But the minute came and then the two minutes came and three minutes came and the pain started to subside and it wasn't the same intensity. And he just said, hold on 
and that's so much like it. It's just like, you know, you know, when, just as I said earlier, it's when the day of trouble comes, not if the day of trouble. We're going to have trouble in this world. But the beauty of that, the the rest of that verse says, you know, is, is talking about how God shows up in his faithfulness. And the, my mother, who's in heaven now, uh, her favorite verse was, it came to pass. It didn't come to stay around. It didn't come to hang out. It didn't come to linger. It didn't come to bury us. It didn't come to weight us down. It, ca- it came to pass. So whether we have these good times in our life, enjoy them. But also understand in the perspective that we live in a broken world. And it's a given that we're going to face hardships. We're going to face pain and loss. Welcome to the human race. Everybody has it to some degree. So if you can hang on just a little longer, that feeling of hopelessness will subside. It will go away. It won't have the same intensity, but you have to hold on. And as long as you hold on, if you um, swallow your pride and reach out to somebody, you might also find out that they are in pain too. That it's easier. Like people go, like why in the world, getting back to the triathlon, get back to the Ironman, you know, why is it that some people are able to push beyond their physical means? Why is it beyond, they're able to push beyond their threshold? It's maybe because they saw a guy in there with two prosthetic legs that was suffering just like they were. And they said, okay, if he can do it, then I can. And that is the Christian life, is that if we will decide to swallow our pride and reach out to somebody that is also in pain and loss. We've experienced pain and loss. We already established at the beginning of our time of sharing that there's two things that we have in common in this life is pain and loss. That we are not alone. We That is the fact in the human race. We are not alone because everybody we meet is going through or has experienced or has come out of some type of pain and loss. And we can take hope in that there is someone up there that is not a cosmic bellhop, that he's a loving, benevolent father that created us, and no better person to be able to understand us, even in our brokenness, and to feel that brokenness with himself, than the God, that the creator, the architect, that designed us. No one knows us better than him. You know, I like to say that he's painfully slow, but never late. And he has been that way in my life. But, it, you know, when I look back at those times, I had to empty myself of everything of myself for him to be able to fill me with full capacity. And it's like that. Today, you know, I have a choice that I can go through my day and fill myself up with me and at the end of the day i'll be broken 
and yeah. hopeless yeah. and disappointed yeah. and bewildered and worried and anxious um, and discouraged. Or I can fill myself up. I can continue to give out. Just take me and then just give it out and t- try to give it out. And God will continually fill me up with himself to the point where at the end of the day, I'm laying my head on the pillow and I am able to sleep because I'm filled full of his presence. Mm-hmm. And I'm filled full. Sure. I mean, we, you know, I tell my friends like, listen, I've got a gas tank. And, mm-hmm. you know, when it gives out, there's nothing to give. There's nothing else. I'm running on. I'm running on empty, yeah. and um, you know, I have to manage that during the day. I have a full time job, and I have to manage that. And I have relationships and friendships and sure. and responsibilities, and I have to manage those. And it's the same way with our spiritual life. You know, if we are are filled full of all the things that I listed, like anxiety and depression and yeah. and worry and stress and uh, relational strife. If we're filled full of all those things, that at the end of the day, it's no work. No, it, there is no surprise that we cannot sleep. Mm-hmm. But if we continue our giving, okay, I'm going to give this out. I'm going to give it, and we give those things to God. And he replaces those with things of himself, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, long-suffering. All those things, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, we have this big fruit basket that will sustain us to the end of the day. And then when our belly is full, full, full of him, then we can have a good night's sleep. Thanks for joining us for this Jewel Show podcast. You can find out more about Scott Rigsby and his book, Unthinkable, which is available everywhere at his website, scottrigsbyfoundation.org. Scott Rigsby, R-I-G-S-B-Y, foundation.org. A complete archive of all Jewel Show podcasts is available at thejoyfm.com and wherever fine podcasts are hosted.